0: All right, we are back. I guess in our first segment, we were doing a lot of uh, coronavirus with politics thrown in. So in the second half, we're going to do something different. We're going to talk about politics with coronavirus thrown in. First, let's do one of our favorites here, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Of the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for the bromance between Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin, with the news that the Senate Intelligence Committee released several fawning letters that Donald Trump wrote to the Russian dictator before Trump became president. Writing in 2007, Trump said, as you probably heard, I'm a big fan of yours, to which he added that Putin definitely deserves being named Time's Man of the Year. And it was a bad week last week for dogs, at least dogs in North Korea, with the news that as food shortages grip that country, the regime has ordered pet dogs to be confiscated in Pyongyang. They denounced the keeping of pets as a bourgeois extravagance. A source told South Korea's Chosun Ilbo that ordinary people raise pigs and livestock on their porches, but high-ranking officials and the wealthy own pet dogs, which stoked some resentments. Hungry North Koreans regard feeding a pet as wasteful, an outrageous diversion of food that could go to a needy family. North Korean authorities are now forcing households with pet dogs to surrender the animals or have them put down. Some are sent to zoos, it's reported, while many are sold to dog meat restaurants. We're pretty sure that has nothing to do with the possibility of dogs getting COVID-19 in North Korea. Anyway, it was an ugly week last week for cattle, according to to The Week magazine, which cited new research by conservationists in Botswana, noting that lions are less likely to attack a cow if it has a pair of large eyes painted on its buttocks, which fools predators into thinking they've been spotted. Researchers said the eye trick is a useful addition to the Carnivore-Livestock Conflict Prevention Toolbox. We reported on this program early in this pandemic that we suspected there were many, many, many more cases in Wuhan than were reported, and that's we stand by that. That probably was true, but it does appear that the Chinese authorities have gotten things under control, in a sign of China's success at containing the coronavirus. Thousands of revelers gathered last week in an open air water park in Wuhan for an electronic music festival. Photos of the event showing unmasked partygoers dancing shoulder-to-shoulder and floating on inflatable tubes went viral around the world. Wuhan, where the coronavirus emerged late last year, recorded 50,000 COVID cases, and the city's 11 million residents were placed under a strict 76-day lockdown lifted in early April, which appears to have been... I guess the right thing to do, given the fact that the city has recorded no new cases of community transmission since May. Residents are alerted by cell phone apps if they've been near someone who tested positive and are told to quarantine. To enter the water park, concertgoers had to show their IDs and a green health code generated by the app. Meanwhile, here in America, we now have at least 180,000 official deaths, although many experts were saying even two weeks ago that the death toll in the U.S. has undoubtedly surpassed 200,000, in fact. That estimate a couple weeks ago was based on the increase in the number of deaths versus the previous year, attributing most of those to COVID. We speculated on this program uh, months ago that there would be a great deal of lying about the actual numbers in this country, and we think that, in fact, is happening Donald Trump has always believed that if he can control the narrative, he can control events, he continues to push the idea, as do his supporters at the Republican Convention, which is currently going on, that he's done a great job in, in, uh, in reining this thing in. It should be noted that most of the people who are speaking at the Republican National Convention and mention the pandemic, they re- refer to it in the past tense, and then they rarely mention its national toll. Speaking to the crowd, uh, Larry Kudlow, the president's top economic advisor, boasted that President Trump had led an extraordinary rescue to, quote, successfully fight the COVID virus, unquote, and save the U.S. economy. He failed to mention, of course, that the virus is still raging and glossed over the immense unemployment and economic pain the virus has created. It also should be noted that when you look at Wuhan, China, and note that after a severe lockdown, they're now apparently free of the virus, we'd have to, you know, dial it back and all those economic arguments that were being offered by the Wall Street uh, types. We couldn't afford to have a lockdown in this country, something we certainly questioned, a lot of people questioned. Can we not argue that you're economically going to be ahead if you did a severe lockdown that was sufficient to close this down? But this battle over information is only going to get worse. This week, the Trump administration ordered hospitals to report data to Health and Human Services or risk losing funding. On August 25th, the administration threatened hospitals with revoking their Medicare and Medicaid funding if they do not report coronavirus patient data and test results to the Department of Health and Human Services. As you probably know, if you've been listening to this program, the normal reporting in the past was done to the Center for Disease Control. This threat was included in new emergency rules announced by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services that make mandatory what until now has been a voluntary program. The new rules generated an immediate backlash from the American Hospital Association, which branded them a heavy-handed regulatory approach. that was announced in final form, they said, without consultation or the opportunity to provide feedback. Rick Pollock, the association's president and chief executive officer, called the changes disturbing. He said it's beyond perplexing why CMS would use a regulatory sledgehammer threatening Medicare participation to the very organizations that are on the front lines in the fight against COVID-19. Mr. Pollock said this rule should be reversed immediately. These rules come amid controversy over the current voluntary data reporting system in July the Trump administration abruptly ordered hospitals to stop reporting coronavirus patient information to the CDC and send results instead to a private vendor, Pittsburgh-based TeleTracking technology, which then provides the data to the Department of Health and Human Services. And if you don't think these moves are being done to control the narrative in this thing, that they're being done to make better health care available to American citizens, I would like to talk to you about buying some bridges I have for sale. Administration officials say this switch was necessary to improve reporting of testing data and that the rules they issued last Tuesday will give the administration an enforcement stick. But the administration, we dare say, is lying. There is a propaganda war going on. We mentioned the Epic Times on this show, I don't know, a month or two ago. It's a terrible rag. It's put out, by I think, by the Falun Gong people uh, allied with strange right-wing elements. I'm not sure if it's the QAnon people or not. I I don't know. It's it's pretty off the wall. They had a headline casting doubt on the Mueller investigation. Here's a couple political items we have to juxtapose. As mentioned on last week's program, the United States Senate released a study. The Republican-led Senate Intelligence Committee, we would add, concluded last week that Russia conducted an aggressive multifaceted effort to sway the 2016 election for Donald Trump. What a surprise. And that Trump's campaign knew about it and welcomed it. The committee said that Trump's former campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, shared internal polling data with a Russian intelligence officer, Konstantin Klimenik, and strategized in detail with him about defeating Hillary Clinton. So you have Trump, to Manafort, Manafort, to Klimanek, Klimanek, to the Russian intelligence services, of which he is a member. While in its fifth and final report from that committee, it did not accuse the Trump campaign of a coordinated conspiracy with Russia. Its nearly 1,000 pages portray a sprawling web of contacts between the campaign's most senior officials and Russian intelligence operations. It also emerged this week that the committee made criminal referrals of White House strategist Steve Bannon, Donald Trump Jr., and the president's son in law, Jared Kushner, for a potentially false or misleading testimony. The Trump campaign used former advisor Roger Stone to lobby WikiLeaks for advance notice on dumps of emails hacked from the Democratic National Committee by Russian spies, the report said, and encouraged further theft of information. The committee found that Trump told aides to, quote, stay in touch with Roger Stone about future leaks, casting doubt on Trump's insistence that he couldn't recall discussing WikiLeaks. It also apparently uncovered evidence independent of the controversial Steele dossier of Trump's involvement with Russian women during visits to Moscow, including testimony that Ritz-Carlton Moscow employees discussed an elevator video of Trump with several women. Trump called the report a hoax. Of course, he calls a lot of things hoaxes. It's getting to the point where even the arch conservative Washington Examiner said the following in a piece by Quinn Hillier The report should settle once and for all that the FBI's investigation of the Russian meddling was not a hoax. In fact, there's so much irrefutable evidence of Russian meddling in the report, as well as contacts between the Trump campaign and Russian spies and people connected to them, that the FBI would have been derelict had it not opened an investigation. Trump fans, said Quinn Hillier, need to get this through their heads. Philip Bump, writing in the Washington Post, said the outing of Klemenak as a spy is devastating for Trump. Now, for the first time, we have a direct line from Russian intelligence to Klemenak to Manafort. Meanwhile, the Attorney General of the United States, William Barr, is pushing his people to probe this Russian connection, and specifically the Mueller report, in effort to invalidate it we noted on this show that Trump's former campaign advisor, Carter Page, was at the center of a lot of this investigation. A FISA court authorized wiretapping of Page to learn more about what he had been up to. Barr continues to push prosecutor John Durham's review of that FBI investigation into Russia's 2016 election interference. And when a former FBI lawyer admitted to altering a CIA email later used by his colleagues to obtain that renewed wiretap on Carter Page. Well, it, it looked as though something really untoward had taken place, or at least it, it looked that way in the headlines. But this is apparently what happened Kevin Kleinsmith, age 38, pled guilty to a felony count of making a false statement in those first charges coming from Prosecutor John Durham's review. He removed a reference in a CIA email that identified Carter Page as a sometime intelligence source for the CIA. And he also told his supervisor that Page was not a CIA source, when in fact he was. So, covering up the fact that Carter Page was a CIA source <laughs> is what he's pleading guilty to. We don't think that in any way, shape, or form alters the main thrust of the investigation. We don't think so. Do you, dear listener? We're still working on bringing on to this program someone working for the United States Postal Service. There's a lot of chicanery going on there, and it is all directly related to the Trump administration's efforts to, to slow down mail-in voting in the November election. By the way, Hillary Clinton came forward a, a day or two ago to, to suggest to Joe Biden that he should not concede this election under any circumstances. I think that's good advice, personally. We note that amid fierce backlash, U.S. Postmaster General Louis DeJoy, a big Trump supporter and contributor, announced this week that he was postponing cost cutting measures, supposed, we would say, cost cutting measures that have slowed mail delivery and sparked fears about compromised mail and balloting this fall. To avoid even the appearance of impact on election mail, he said, I am suspending these initiatives until after the election. Noted the Wall Street Journal, since assuming the job in June, DeJoy, a major donor to President Trump, has cut back overtime, reduced post office hours, and decommissioned scores of high-speed sorting machines. The moves led to reports of week-long waits for paychecks and mail-order medications and stoked fears that service was intentionally being slowed down to aid the president's re-election efforts. It should be noted that 47% of voters who back Joe Biden intend to vote by mail during the pandemic, compared to just 11% of Trump supporters. Now, it's one thing for DeJoy to make these statements that he's going to postpone changes till the election, but the fact of the matter is 671 high-speed sorting machines have been taken offline which caused Charles Pierce to write in Esquire.com, there are enough holes in DeJoy's statements to drive a full-size family minivan through. Will the 671 sorting machines removed from USPS facilities be returned? Will overtime be approved for workers facing a November crush? Will DeJoy push ahead with plans to charge states' first-class rates for ballots, more than double what they traditionally pay? The Democrats must press hard for answers while keeping in mind the crucial political fact of our era that nothing this administration says can be taken as truth. In writing about this in the Los Angeles Times, Michael McGow said DeJoy's retreat is welcome, but much of the damage may be impossible to undo. For some Americans, Trump's unfounded trashing of mail-in voting has planted doubts about whether their mail-in ballots will be counted or whether they might be canceled out by fraudulently cast votes, in quotes. These voters may be suspicious about the outcome. The distrust may not fade. However, heroically, the post office conducts itself from now until the final votes are counted. Unless the Democrats stand up here and and, and shake things up, we can't see any reason to trust that the U.S. Postal Service is going to do the right thing under the direction of Mr. DeJoy. I mean, a leopard just doesn't change his spots. Writing in Vox.com, Ian Milheiser and Aaron Rupar noted that if you think Trump world has moved past birtherism, think again. Joe Biden no sooner announced Kamala Harris as his presidential running mate when the Trump campaign began lending credence to the same racist conspiracy theories that Donald Trump used to question Barack Obama's eligibility to be president. Trump campaign legal advisor Jenna Ellis retweeted a fringe theory claiming that Harris is not entitled to birthright citizenship under the 14th Amendment and is thus ineligible to serve as vice president. Noted Vox.com, Harris was born in Oakland to immigrant parents from India and Jamaica who may not yet have been U.S. citizens, but back in 1898, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the 14th Amendment made a citizen of anyone born on U.S. soil who isn't a child of a foreign diplomat or otherwise not subject to U.S. law. Yet, Jenna Ellis said Harris's eligibility is an open question, and Trump himself said, in typical Trump fashion, I just heard it today that she doesn't meet the requirements." that's so trump i just heard today or people say or i'm hearing now belarus of course had some trouble with its election on august 9th there's a lot of people who believe that alexander lukashenko in fact lost the election to the opposition candidate svetlana tikonovskaya who was then forced to flee to lithuania People have now risen up in mass, hundreds of thousands have marched through the state capital of Minsk, waving the red and white flag of the short-lived Belarusian Republic back in 1918. The protesters have remained peaceful, even in the face of incredibly cruel repression. That's according to the Kiev Post. Thousands have been arrested and tortured, and even workers in state factories, the bedrock of Lukashenko's support during his 23 years in power, are turning on him. During a speech at a Minsk truck plant, he suffered public humiliation when the once-loyal crowd shouted at him, Go! Lukashenko raged at the workers and vowed, There would be no new election until you kill me. For his part, Lukashenko claims that the protesters are paid masses instigated by Western Europeans. He's now begging Vladimir Putin for assistance. Does this remind you of anybody else? We do know for the record that so far, Alexander Lukashenko has not enlisted Kanye West's help. Writing in rollingstone.com, Ryan Bort said, ready or not, Kanye 2020 is happening. Rapper Kanye West, age 43, has secured ballot spots in five states so far, Colorado, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Utah, and Vermont. For his third party bid for the presidency, and he's getting plenty of help from allies of President Trump. Kanye recently met with Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law and de facto campaign manager, for a friendly discussion, as Kushner put it. In fact, Kushner reportedly speaks to West nearly every day. Meanwhile, quote, GOP-affiliated operative types, unquote, are scrambling in battleground states like Ohio and Wisconsin to amass enough signatures to get West's name on the ballot there. The goal, of course, is to help Trump's re-election bid by siphoning black voters away from presumptive Democratic nominee Joe Biden, which Kanye West doesn't dispute. I'm not denying it, he said. For his part, Donald Trump claimed not to be pushing West's candidacy, but conceded, I think it's great. Writing in Reason.com, Brian Doherty said, "It's it's far from certain that Kanye West will help Trump. He's currently polling 2% nationally. I mean, who are those 2%? Whatever. He's polling 2% nationally, and his platform includes such conservative-leaning planks as returning to school prayer and securing federal aid for faith-based groups. But you know, it doesn't take much. The current polling of the Electoral College seems to show Joe Biden ahead in Enough states to secure him 268 electoral votes, leaving him too short of what he needs. He could pick up one of those votes in Maine, which divides its electors based on different precincts, but he needs to take one of the following, Arizona, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, Ohio, or Wisconsin. In 2016, Donald Trump unexpectedly ran the table on all of those states and became president. Now, yours truly has vowed to get off social media in the past, and is going to vow again to do it after this election, but a lot of this electoral battle is going to be fought on Facebook and other social media, and I I, I think I should stay for the time being, if for no other reason than to take the broken record posting of, of a certain relative of mine who keeps pointing out how hypocritical the Democrats are, and how the Democrats really aren't any better than the Republicans, blah, 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 blah. I confess to a great deal of sympathy for his cynicism based on what I've watched in elections over the past, I don't know, half century or so. But I had to jump on to post, look, this is exactly the kind of crap here on Facebook that is going to get Donald J. Trump reelected. And if you can't see the difference between a bad choice and a horrendous choice, then I'm tired of listening to what you got to say. I think all of us may need to apply that principle of triage in the next 10 weeks and for us next nine shows. Well, the concept of triage is based on the battlefield sorting out a different casualties. There are some people who are going to live no matter what. There are some people who are going to die no matter what. In the triage concept, you try and focus on the people who will live or die if you can do the right thing. There's some people out there that there's nothing you're going to be able to say to to convince them that well maybe voting for Trump on election day isn't such a good idea. So stop wasting your time. And although it's easy to have a gripe session where we all marvel at the complete factory of lies that is the Trump machine, but at the end that's not not going to get us anywhere. What we need to do is find those people, and there are a lot of people out there who sort of want to like Trump, and and. I would note that if, if Donald Trump was who he portrayed himself to be, uh, there there would be a few things in there to like. A few. Uh, the trouble is, Donald Trump absolutely is not who he portrays himself to be. And uh, here's something Mr. McMillan found about what his sister, the federal judge, thinks about him. This goddamn tweet and the lying. Oh my God, I'm talking too freely, but you know. it is The change of stories, the lack of preparation, the lying, the holy... Yeah, I guess that recording came from uh, Trump's niece. I- I'm so stuck on this testing issue. The fact that Trump has deliberately slowed it down, possibly based on what Jared Kushner suggested to him. The fact that he says publicly we should be doing less testing because it, you know, it makes us look bad, all those, all those positive tests. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at a New York Times piece from the 16th of August. It, it looks like it's from ancient history, something from just a week and a half ago. Before the CDC comes forward to downplay the necessity of testing people, what they were saying on August 16th was testing a lot of people is crucial to seeing where the virus is going and identifying hot spots before they get out of hand. Experts see extensive testing as a key part of safely reopening schools, businesses, and sports. The nation's testing capacity has expanded from where it was only a few months ago, but public health experts believe it must grow far more to bring the virus under control. The Harvard Global Health Institute suggested the country needs at least one million tests per day to slow the spread of the virus, and as many as four million per day to get ahead of the virus and stop new cases. We have no reason to doubt those numbers, and yet there is no federal effort to achieve them. This article notes There is a broad consensus that the current level of testing is inadequate and that any decrease in testing is a worrisome move in the wrong direction. Yet, nine days after that piece appears in the New York Times, the New York Times reports that the Center for Disease Control was instructed by higher-ups in the Trump administration to modify its testing guidelines to exclude people who do not have symptoms, even if they've been recently exposed to the virus. This is insanity. It is prolonging the pandemic here in the United States. I mean, God knows when we're going to get this under control here based on these counterproductive actions being taken and keep in mind that schools have not ramped up that we have not reached the fall and winter cold and flu season. We are still in the first wave. Right, as we wrap up today, I mean the the key lesson we have to stress, we're going to keep stressing over the next 9 weeks is that you're going to be lied to and lied to a lot in the weeks to come. And in fact, uh, we don't have much time to talk about it, but there was a study a couple days ago I've just stumbled on. The four players mentioned in that article in Rolling Stone, Stephen Hahn of the FDA, Robert Redfield of the CDC, Alex Azar of the Health and Human Services, and Donald J. Trump, the four Stooges, are the main guys you got to watch here in the Life Factory. And three of the four, wouldn't you know it, got together last Sunday To announce in a press conference the emergency approval of blood plasma for hospitalized COVID patient, Trump and Azar and Stephen Hahn cited the same statistic that apparently grossly misrepresents the facts. They said the treatment had reduced deaths by 35%. Trump called it a tremendous number. Alex Azar said, I don't want you to gloss over this number. Stephen Hahn said 35 out of 100 COVID patients would have been saved because of the administration of plasma. But notes the time scientists were taken aback by the way the administration framed this data, which appeared to have been calculated based on a small subgroup of patients. Many experts, including a scientist who worked on the actual study, were bewildered about where the statistic came from. That number was not mentioned in the official authorization letter issued to the agency or in the 17-page memo written by the FDA. Dr. Walid Jalad, who leads the Center for Pharmaceutical Policy and Prescribing at the University of Pittsburgh, said, for the first time ever, I feel like official people in communications and people at the FDA grossly misrepresented data about a therapy. He added, it is especially worrisome given concerns over how Trump has appeared to politicize the process of approving treatments and vaccines for the coronavirus. So there it is. Maybe that was an October surprise coming a couple months early that we have a cure now for this or a very, very promising treatment in blood plasma. And blood plasma may turn out to be an effective treatment. It's just that when Donald Trump, Alex Azar, and Stephen Hahn pluck a number basically out of thin air, you should not believe it. There's a lot of hope people have for convalescent plasma. In fact, when I was talking to the gentleman in Southern California that had gotten better, I said to both of them, I want your blood, which they thought was pretty funny. A more realistic assessment of the data would have said that in this Mayo Clinic study of 35,000 patients, when plasma was given within three days of diagnosis, the death rate was about 22% compared to 25% when it was only given four days or more after the diagnosis. In short, this is not the same as saying the treatment had reduced deaths by 35%. Since Trump and his people seem to lie about everything, it's it's for the first degree of approximation when a statistic is cited by any of these guys, you should probably just assume it is a lie. Anyway, we need to close on some good news in the midst of all this, and fortunately we have some. Evidence is mounting that many people may be partly resistant to the coronavirus because their immune systems have been primed to recognize and fight off similar infections, Scientists suspect that memory T-cells could be a key to this immune response. The working theory is that previous battles with related coronaviruses, such as the four that cause common cold, may have taught T-cells how to ward off the new virus. Researchers say this might explain some curious trends in the epidemiology of the pandemic including why 40% of infected people develop no symptoms. A recent U.S. study found that T-cells in blood donated from 2015 and 2018, long before the coronavirus even existed, appeared to recognize the virus when presented with it. Researchers in other countries report similar findings. In a recent study from Singapore, 50% of uninfected people had T-cells that react to the coronavirus. We speculated on this show some time back, not specifically T-cells, but in in terms of some immune memory to previous coronavirus infections. I I personally hope that having been a a primary care physician for many decades and someone who no doubt got many episodes of coronavirus over those many years, that I, I might have some immunity built in. I hope so. I'm not anxious to test it, but I hope so. Anyway, there is there is some cause for hope here. Well, there's always cause for hope. We just cannot let the GOP brainwash us into thinking that this thing is behind us. It is not. That's about it. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax.